Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. All sweating daggers, believe it, I'm the real thing. But I gotta switch it on. Kevin Rabicho, aka Bearwire, is a professional poker player, coach, and high-stakes online player. He's well known for his videos at Run It Once, where he invites viewers into both live play sessions and post-mortems, including a series on the history of heads-up poker. Kevin is also an aficionado of ultimate frisbee and of cooking. Thanks so much for joining me, Kevin, and picking out an exotic combo. 10-5 offsuit as we scavenge the world of poker for the top 169 hand histories of all time. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. Excited to be here. Set it up for us, Kevin. Sure. So, I mean, as you kind of mentioned, what I normally play or played for a long time is heads up, no limit. Uh, so this is not exactly typical, but a, a relatively common kind of situation I would find myself in playing uh, an online heads-up cash game against a pretty good regular. Uh, and this this hand in particular was played at 510 uh, on Party Poker. So tell us a little bit more about your opponent, because when you sent this hand to me, you mentioned that... You know, it was it was interesting to you because of the type of opponent that was somebody that you typically find on party poker in those days. The most interesting thing about the the party poker heads up at the time was that they used a king of the hill format uh, for their for their lobby. So basically, what that means is there was a fixed number of tables that that existed on the site, and there could never be more than that number. So I, I think the number at the time was eighteen. Uh, per person, and I think that was also the like the most that you could open, just for like one limit or one game type or whatever. So there would only ever exist eighteen heads up five ten tables on party poker. That was just like the way it worked, uh, or maybe it was sixteen. But essentially, one one person could make it their goal to to be the only player who could sit this game. Uh, and there were a lot of people that this opponent, his screen name was no Benny today. Uh, this opponent was one of many who would kind of battle it out day after day after day to try and, uh, I guess we would say control the lobby to try and sit every table. So you run into some pretty interesting situations, uh, especially if say there's, there's two or three people, uh, who are friends with each other who are willing to sit at the same time or two or three people who are trying to to push someone off their their tables by kind of sitting all of them at once. So if if I was sitting it would be a common occurrence uh, that I would have the maximum number of tables open myself and within 30 seconds all 18 tables would be active with 
two or three different guys joining to play all at once. And now it's, I mean, as you know, there's a short time bank on on most online sites. So uh, it's pretty much off to the races to play 18 tables against regulars. This was like a, a situation where it would be hard to be um, on your own then. You'd have to have yes. other friends kind of occupy the tables with you. It was difficult to to play in this environment alone. That's definitely true. Uh, and there were groups of, there were groups of regulars. And I don't remember for sure that Nobini was like part of some kind of cartel. Um, but I, I know that there were, there were groups of regulars who were always kind of fighting in these ways. And it wasn't just a game of poker. It was, it was also a game of like, how fast can you click to keep your spot on the table? Now, when you use the word cartel, that obviously has um, a negative connotation. Do you feel like these kind of tactics to occupy the lobby, were they in some ways distasteful in your view? Um, like kind of competing mm. with the purity of poker? I don't think that they were necessarily a, a negative thing for poker as a whole because it it was really just within the construct that party poker decided was was the way they wanted to run their site. It's really just a kind of a reaction to the situation and I and I don't really fault anyone for trying to do that. It is something that you had to be prepared for. Uh, and I, I don't think party poker was the only place, but it was the one I remember best because it had had the largest number of tables. Other sites would have like four or six or maybe eight. And in those circumstances, you could kind of play it out on your own. Well, that interests me because this podcast is a game within a game. And mm -hmm. this, of course, of what you're describing is also the, the game of getting against the opponents that you want to within the game of poker. And obviously, that's such a key skill for um, online pros, live pros, everyone. But, you know, it makes a, a particular difference in the heads up player career, right? It's a format that for... Uh, the majority of time has been considered predatory. So there's always been that kind of second level game going on where, you know, people are either um, sitting with the intention of, of avoiding good players or they're sitting with the intention of, of battling good players or kind of some combination of the two. There's, there's always been that extra dynamic going on in, in Heads Up Online. What was the year again? I believe this hands from 2013. So in 2013, you have the uh, the 10-5 off. Yes. You probably don't remember all the details because it was so many years ago, but you had been battling a little bit with um, Nobini today. And what was the dynamic like between the two of you? So what I remember of this player is that despite the fact that we were playing so many tables usually when we played, he really did not shy away from aggression. I think that like pre-flop, three-betting and four-betting and... Uh, kind of multi-street bluffing. These were all pretty common for this player. Um, you're right that I don't remember specific reads, but I just remember that like the days that I played this guy were action days. This was not a this was not a tight game. And you were probably playing like another bunch of tables against him at this very same time, right? Yes, it's almost guaranteed. I don't I don't think I ever played this player at fewer than six tables. Wow. Okay. So take us through this specific hand where you, again, um, have the 10-5 off. I get dealt 10-5 offsuit on the button. I raise the minimum. So I raise to 20 and no Benny calls in the big blind. Uh, flop here is 6-5 deuce with uh, two diamonds. And he checks. I bet $30 and he check raises to 95. I call the check raise. And the turn is a king of spades, so no no draw is complete here. King offsuit, 
Uh, no Benny bets $172, and I call. And the river is an ace of hearts. Again, no draws complete. Uh, no Benny bets $430, and I call. All right, so you called with the. Uh, tell us a little bit about the with the, the call. pair of fives. <laughs> <laughs> tell us about that call in the river. I see from this description that you actually um, you did obviously time bank. It wasn't yes. it wasn't the easiest call in the world. No, and and I mean it's funny. I don't know for sure if the time bank was because I didn't know if I was going to call or if the time bank was because I had five other decisions to make on other tables. Um, it's it is a situation to me that if if I decided to call turn here, I probably was never going to fold this river. I think that was a very common kind of approach, especially many years ago was, you, you know, I'm, I'm making a very, very light call here on the turn with with third pair, no draw. And that pretty much means that I think he's bluffing a lot. And I'm committed to calling another bluff uh, if the board doesn't change. So that that for sure i mean just knowing knowing the way that i approached the game at the time i really doubt i was planning on folding this river right and that's the kind of um discussion that you went through in your series on the history of heads up right about these different ways of thinking and how they evolved mm-hmm. over the years of heads up and you mentioned this this kind of uh typical thing that people would say well if you call turn here you have to call river right that was like yeah that was like a thing that people said that now kind of sounds like more like almost like a joke right yeah, it's funny. I mean, it it was for some reason considered like if the if the river didn't change the board, then there was no new information. But of course, the the river bet is new information. <laughs> Some, somehow that got overlooked for many years. And it's 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 amazing because obviously um, the, these are such such incredibly intelligent people. And it, it, mm-hmm. with the benefit of the extra theory that people know now, it seems so obvious. But why do you think this kind of thinking wasn't uncovered as flawed? It's interesting because it, at the time it might not have been flawed. I think it was. I think it was a narrow way of looking at of looking at poker. And before before people used kind of solvers or whatever software assistance to help them make decisions, we relied entirely on kind of human logic and, and heuristics to make our decisions. So I think that from the point of view of the player bluffing, if nothing changes and you were the one who showed aggression on the previous street, you were expected to just keep showing aggression. And it wasn't really commonplace knowledge like the mathematics of of how frequently you're allowed to bluff, the mathematics of, of how accurate you need to be um, in your calling decisions to to adjust, you know, to to a never fold strategy or to or to try and fold sometimes or, or this and that. It was really more of like a guessing game environment where uh, you would you would stick to the plan, you would show aggression, you might not really be sure how often you're bluffing or how often you're you're value betting. It was it was street poker a little bit. Right. So the idea is that if your opponent was over bluffing and didn't want to slow down, um, if they made such a big turn barrel kind of setting up yeah. a jam on the river, that therefore this actual this logic was actually potentially coming to the exact right conclusion, even if some mm-hmm. of the stipulations in it were flawed. Yeah, totally. It's it was just playing off of the way the other the other player was expected to think. If if they're not going to stop bluffing, then why would we stop calling? And the turning point, I mean, in terms of poker theory, um, of course, with the the Janda book kind of elegantly laying out this idea that there are flop bluffs, turn bluffs, and river bluffs, I feel like that's 
that's really relevant yes. to me because he put it in such like a obvious way, you know, like, yeah, yeah, that information those... was great for sure. I mean, yeah. just a really, a really good, uh, summary or, or kind of amalgamation of ideas that, that wasn't so clearly laid out. I think a lot of good players understood those concepts, but yeah, they, they hadn't been put kind of in, in one place eloquently, like you said. Basically, you had a great hand here. You had the pair of fives <laughs> and somehow you, you lost the hand. You got sucked out on. Well, I, actually, in this in this hand, uh, no Benny had it. He he flopped the straight. Uh, so this this was just not necessarily a poor decision by me, but an an incorrect one in <laughs> in the exact hand. So no Benny has four three offsuit here, which I think is interesting in the first place, just to show that is I don't think it was normal in 2013 to to call the big blind with four three offsuit. You were just um, such a huge favorite pre flop. So really, this is. You know, 65, 35, you, this is really like a bad beat story, right? Well, that's one, I mean, that's one way to look at it. I made a, I made a lot of decisions to, to call more money with the worst hand. So, so you got to put a little bit of the fault on me, I think. Yeah, but this is a remarkable hand, you say, because it kind of shows you this evolution of heads up and the kind of different ways of thinking um, of mm -hmm. even the highest stakes players. Is it more strike you because of the lobby politics? One thing that kind of to me makes this like quintessential heads up is is the battle aspect of it not not only like the lobby politics like we mentioned at the beginning but just the fact that we both had such poor preflop hands and then went on to make really aggressive decisions across all the streets i think that it's it's the type of hand that makes you realize like how different a one-on-one -on -one game is from a lot of other poker games in that like these are this is this was a series of very reasonable decisions by both players, in my opinion, and we both had garbage hands. Well, that's the beauty of heads up, isn't it? And <laughs> I really do love that that heads up because I started out in chess. It feels like it has a lot of those psychological chess-like elements. But mm -hmm. how would you play this hand differently today? So suppose you're playing against another high-stakes reg. Right. Um, what would be the main decisions that you think would be very different in this hand? It's a great question. I, I think right from the start, there's a question mark on whether I would play this hand preflop at all. It's not great to to min-raise uh, because it, it offers the big blind really a really good price to play a lot of hands in the big blind. And that's not necessarily what I want uh, as the button. So I think my strategy now, just from the beginning, would be to raise a little bit bigger with a tighter range, and that range might not include 10-5 offsuit. This hand maybe wouldn't have happened in, in even in 2015 if I was playing. I might have just folded pre and moved on to the next one. If you had raised, you likely would have raised bigger, and then he wouldn't have flatted with the the 4-3, right? Yeah, I think it's unlikely. If I if I open 25 or, or 26, $27, I think it's unlikely he calls 4-3 offsuit. It would be, yeah, it would be pretty light. That would also probably change the dynamic of, of him check-raising on 6-5 deuce with a flush draw. Because uh, there's there's far less hands that he can he can have, far less strong hands he can have if he doesn't have the 4-3. Uh, or the 6-deuce, or the 5-deuce, or, or even the 6-5, right? There's, there's not many good hands that he could have. Right, in which case he probably would have check called the flop rather than check raise it because it mm -hmm. wouldn't make much as much sense for him to have a check raising range. So yeah, it's totally possible. So every single decision in the hand is different, except of course the bet on the flop. I actually think that I I don't mind 
the way that I play the hand after betting the flop. I think facing a check raise, it's it's a pretty like reasonable hand to call at least once. Uh, I do have a good pair on a board that's that's hard to make pairs, so I think I have to at least call the flop. And then once it gets to the turn, it's it's a little bit of that judgment call where it's like if I think my opponent bluffs too much. I mean, I have a flopped pair, so so I have some okay blockers to sets to to flop two pair, and I don't block any bluffs really because I have that ten of clubs, which is just like this nice disconnected card. Uh, it's it's not that hard for my opponent to have a straight draw or a flush draw here. So basically, on the turn and on the flop, after you played it as is, you think that the rest of the hand wouldn't be an insane um, hero call today. No, I, I don't think it gets looked at as that insane. I think I think today uh, people understand the value of of blockers and also I guess in this case like a negative blocker. So so for me like having having the five uh, and five of diamonds, which is kind of good, I guess. Um, having the five, which you know is a is a pair, it's a valid bluff catcher. Uh, but it also makes it harder for my opponent to have two pair. It makes it harder for my opponent to have a set. So with this pair of fives, I have a a very justifiable uh, bluff catch on on all streets just because when the turn is blank and the river is blank, uh, there's a priority placed on if you can block um, the the strongest hands on the flop. And I do block some of the strongest hands on the flop. I block uh, king five of diamonds. I block ace five of diamonds. I block five five, and I block six five offsuit, which are a lot of really strong hands on the flop. It's actually not a crazy call. I think if this got to showdown in today's games, uh, pre-flop would be the only discussion really, and everything else would be looked at as like not that unusual. Well, that's really interesting because I think this hand mm-hmm. just in general encapsulates a lot of. Uh, the the different changes and heads up that have occurred in the last six years. Now I know that you're um, one of the big things that you do is coaching, and you coach both mm-hmm. six max and heads up, right? But mostly six max. In recent years, there's just been there's been fewer people, uh, in general, playing heads up as as kind of their only format. I think when people come to me for coaching, they they understand that the strong part of what I can offer is shorthanded play kind of you know maybe for starting tables in six max or maybe just for playing heads up at the end of a a tournament or at the end of like a live cash game session sometimes that comes up um so i I think that's where most of the interest is i don't personally teach a lot of six max theory specifically uh, but i've worked with a lot of six max players yeah one thing that strikes me about heads up players is how much insight and practice they have into differentiating weaker hands from the grid whereas somebody who plays full ring or mtts mm-hmm. is less acquainted with playing certain hands like obviously 10-5 offsuit mm-hmm. and they they might have this tendency to kind of glop all of the bottom 40 percent hands together into like one big morass of stuff that I don't really play right. unless I get min-raised and I'm in the big blind. Um, yeah. So how do you perceive this in your coaching career? Is this like a really big strength that heads-up players have on the rest of the pool? I think it is. I think the scenario you just hinted at is a really good example of where heads-up players thrive, I think. Now that people in tournaments or in full ring are understanding that defending the big blind with these weak hands is is often the correct play, they're getting themselves into these spots where their range is is much, much wider than they're used to it being. And they're not necessarily comfortable making decisions 
within that big range and and heads up players are doing it every hand like they've they've been dealing with 60 70 80 percent pre-flop ranges for their entire career so i think that is a strength of of mine and other people who have played a lot of heads up is that they can navigate those situations really comfortably and make better decisions than a lot of tighter players in in the spots that are they're actually more frequent than a lot of other situations you mean just because you get late position versus big blind defend quite often these days yeah they might be small pots but they might happen you know twice an hour in a live game or they might happen like i don't know 20 20 percent of overall hands that go to a flop might be might be button versus blinds or cut off versus blinds or something like that it's it's quite uncommon to see a hand that's like under the gun opens and cut off calls and everyone else folds that's that's not a really common uh result usually you're seeing the blinds play a hand against somebody and those are the widest range spots so i do think that's where heads up players find their advantage what are some of the typical mistakes you see from people who aren't used to heads up and playing with a really wide range? Is it a lot of times like over bluffing because they don't realize how big that bottom of range is with all of those, you know, bottom hands that we mentioned? I think there's two really big ones. Uh, what for sure over bluffing is one of them. I I used to tell my students there there was like a heuristic that we used to to kind of lean on whenever it was possible to have a, a one card straight draw so like to make a to make a gut shot or an open ender with with just one of your cards uh everyone over bluffed it was just a rule of thumb like because if everyone's bluffing with their draws and they don't really understand how often they have draws you just find the boards where draws happen more often and and everyone was bluffing too much so that was like a really fun advantage that we found in in people who like against people who are maybe six max regulars playing in the heads up game or against people who are uh, on the loose side in the heads up game in general and for sure i think that that even happens today when tournament players are are defending the big blind wider than they used to and now they just find themselves with more bluffing hands and they they maybe haven't worked out the math to see how often they're allowed to bluff them right that's number one and then you said there was another one there's a lot of situations where they where they don't realize how weak they are and they end up folding too much because I think that by calling in the big blind, using that as the example, with a lot of, you know, say 60, 70 percent of hands because of antis or because of whatever late position versus big blind, you're going to find yourself in a lot of situations where your checking range has so many unpaired hands and so many like fourth pairs and so many third pairs. And just by frequency, a lot of people aren't used to that. They're not used to, to looking down at third pair and thinking, oh, this is like a pretty decent hand to call turn and river with. <laughs> it, it, never, it never occurs to them, right? So unless they do the work on, on just how weak they are and just how often they make these like weak hands... Uh, I find that they're checking, like, once they check, they just end up folding a lot. They're just waiting for second pair or waiting for top pair, and they're they're only going to have it 10 or 20% of the time. Do you think that most people need to really get into the ring and play heads up, even if it's not profitable, just to prepare themselves? That's interesting. I, I think a lot of good players have taken that approach. I, I can think of a few good tournament players and, and ring game players who have spent a while like battling it out on stars to work on that part of their game. I also think that there's some very good tournament players who have never done that, but they've just done the study. I mean, there's amazing study tools out there now. So I do think that you can get by with a fair bit of, you know, PO solver work or whatever, it, whatever your favorite piece of software is. That said, I mean, 
different people learn different ways. And I think a lot of people just like to experience the spots and like think through the spots at the felt. And I totally support that. I mean, it's, it helps me that I'm one of those people who really needs to like play through spots to, to start to build an intuition for it. Definitely when you mentioned intuition. And as I mentioned to you um, before um, I got you on this podcast, the concept is I'm going to be interviewing somebody for every single hand on the poker grid. So now you've taken the very coveted spot 10-5 off. So (laughs) I'm really glad you didn't pick like aces or ace king because, you know, (laughs) there's going to be a lot of tournament players who are going to have so many interesting hands with those particular holdings. So. I think tournament players would be would be proud to show off the worst hand that they've that they've played a a tough spot with, you know, like like the old cold four bet with queen deuce suited or something. I think they'd be really proud of those hands. I feel like the the suited ones I'm gonna have a little bit more ease with. Which which ones do you think is gonna be the hardest? The hardest hand to find. Um, geez, I mean the easiest will probably be seven deuce exactly. off suit. Uh, I think it's I think it's gonna be hard. Yeah, I mean hands hands in the ballpark. I mean. Like this, this hand here is is a is a tough one because it's it's one that a lot of people wouldn't play preflop, but also there's no novelty to it. So I think a lot of those hands are like you know your your ten threes and your jack deuce and your and your nine five offsuit. Like those are hands that get played so rarely, but there's also no novelty. Right, it's like be there's tricky. the seven deuce game, and then all the suited hands, of course, people yeah. might be using for some three bet bluffs or even a cold four bet. Whereas something like a nine three or a ten deuce that people aren't opening or defending is it's going to be tricky. So if you're listening to mm-hmm. this and you have a really good hand with that combo, you know, hit me up. Finally, I was really fascinated to hear that you're very much into coaching ultimate frisbee have you picked any tips on how to coach poker from that work it's been really interesting dealing with kind of the team sport format versus the the one-on-one kind of mental sport format for sure i i've noticed i guess in the opposite direction i've noticed that like my poker coaching background translates really easily to working with people individually on on like their skills how to improve their skills how to how to adapt to the game environment things like that but i i think what's been most helpful to my poker coaching is kind of the dynamic that you that you have at a practice at a team practice where there's 20 or 25 or 30 people in the same room or on the same field in my case uh, who need to kind of get training in different ways at the same time so like the classroom environment which which i've never been a part of because i'm not you know i i really respect how difficult it is to be a classroom teacher because not only do you have to manage those one-on-one interactions which are actually not that challenging but you have to at this like with everyone there all at the same time figure out how to how to hit all the different skill levels and hit all the different needs in one like amazing presentation or to hit that all in one really good uh lecture or class activity or things like that so i think that especially with poker like with my poker coaching being a little more focused on like video making for a community or writing an article for a community or you know maybe maybe even hosting kind of a group lesson or or a group session with 10 or 12 different people the team structure is is helping me kind of wrap my head around how to accomplish that better it's it's really challenging though yeah, i've done a lot of coaching myself and especially in chess and i think one of the most challenging things is that 
the people who are the most proficient and might have slightly um, less, uh, slightly uh, slower learning curves because they already know so much. They're the ones who are going to be most vocal. And then the people who really have a lot of questions and maybe have the most to learn, um, it might be a little bit harder to um, get them to open up. So that that's just kind of an inherent difficulty with group coaching sometimes. That's really interesting. Do you have any tips for me on how to on how to handle that environment? Because I'd be glad to hear them. I think that you have to cold call people a lot of the time, mm-hmm. especially being being that I'm also a feminist in all of my work. Um, it's very well documented that girls and women ask questions less frequently. And even when they're confident of the answers, they don't give you the answer. So it's almost like an imperative that you have to make people uncomfortable and just call on them even when they're not. Um, raising their hands. So I, yeah. I think that that's pretty interesting for what you do as well, because I was really interested to learn that ultimate is one of the few um, physical sports where even at the highest level, women and men often play on the same field. There's a large division devoted to it. There's uh, There's been attempts. I think there is actually in Australia a professional league devoted to it. Uh, but yeah, we play, we play mixed gender games, either with uh, four men, three women, or four women, three men on the field at at the same time. Do you find that the women are sometimes a little quieter or do you not really have that issue? Even though it's a mixed team sport, uh, a lot of the teams are run by men or the the figurehead for that team is male. And I think that makes it challenging for the female players to take on a big role or to open up to the the coach or to the captain and kind of give their their honest input about what they would do differently. We're, we're constantly trying to evaluate like if we're doing a good job at that and make sure that those voices are not ignored. And I think, I mean, I hope we're doing a better job, um, but it is challenging. There's, there's statistics on in mixed ultimate Frisbee that even with equal play time, I think the stats show that 80, 85% of the time, the person picking up the disc is male, uh, even though it's an even distribution of field time. And like just passes in general go to men about 60% of the time, 60, 65% of the time. It's still not great, but we're very aware of it and we're, we're definitely working on it. You got to work on that next generation because I think that in chess, we've got a lot of, a lot more girls playing, but then they haven't become women yet to be the coaches, right? So fortunately, if there's more girls and women in the field, then that likely means there will be more coaches and leaders in the future generations. And you just kind of have to push to make that happen. And when I see chess and poker, I think it's just really important to get people actively involved and make sure like that you're asking kind of yeah. group questions whenever you can. You and I have talked about this um, in depth about how hard it is to get better at something if you're not actively trying to learn. And when when people look at your videos, yeah. I feel that that's really important. They should kind of come up with a, a point where they either ask a question in the comments or they try to run in hand independently or almost disagree with you. Like try to come up with something that they disagree with. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And and I'm definitely going to continue to think about what you said just now, which is basically like making sure that those people who are not naturally speaking up, making sure that they speak up, not just like providing the platform. You know, if it's just like, does anyone have any questions? Then, of course, the people who answer, are, it, there's going to be a bias in, in who's willing to speak up in that kind of environment. So I, I really like that idea of just like calling on people to answer. 
And in the and in the poker training con context, uh, maybe having having videos that force the viewer to answer something. I think it's a great idea for for the viewer to be more interactive, for the video maker to to kind of make sure that the the person watching is actually engaged. Absolutely, and that's kind of my concept for the grade to make me more active, as it's not only finding podcast guests, but it's also like my own personal challenge to kind of like find these interesting hands that are kind of uh, mm-hmm. not your typical hands. Um, it just it just gives me kind of a framework to explore an artistic even side to poker. I also just enjoy talking to people like you. That sounds like a great segue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. And I know that we can follow you at Kay Ravichel um, on Twitter. Yes. Yeah, that's right. All right. And uh, you're going to be a little bit more active there, I heard, as... <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna try for sure. I want... I'm, I'm making it kind of a personal focus of mine to go to more live stops this year. So, uh, yeah, for sure, if anyone listening recognizes me at one of the Party Poker Millions events, I'm going to Montreal next month or to... Uh, or at World Series of Poker, hopefully at least during the main event. Feel free to just stop me and say hi. I'm always happy to chat. Thanks for having me, Jen. Yeah, thanks so much. You were awesome. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as the quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night. And follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever busts. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.